Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. Atlantic bluefin tuna have been swimming in our oceans and in the human imagination for millions of years. Topping out at more than 1,500 pounds apiece, these apex predators face their greatest threat not from sharks or a dwindling food supply, but from us and our unwillingness to stop overfishing them, to say nothing of the occasional catastrophic oil spill. But our understanding of how these majestic creatures navigate the ocean, defined by an imaginary line through the middle of the Atlantic, has been challenged by recent discoveries, and the life story of one tuna in particular. Karen Pynchon's new book, Kings of Their Own Ocean, tells the story of that fish, an Atlantic bluefin tuna named Amelia, tagged in 2004 by the fisherman Al Anderson off the coast of Rhode Island and recaptured two more times before her ultimate death in the Mediterranean. Karen Pynchon joins the podcast to talk about what Amelia's tale has to tell us about fishing and climate, science and commerce, and the future of the seas. Thank you so much for chatting with me, Karen. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. It's great to be on. So how did you first hear about Amelia, the, the little blue fin that could, and what moved you about her story to write this book? If you had asked me 10 years ago that this would be what I would be doing right now, I probably would have said that was a very unlikely story. Um, I had been poking around for characters, I guess, for ideas or or issues that encapsulated a lot of the collision of climate and ecology and ocean science that I had covered at that point about for a decade already. And I got a call from a bluefin tuna scientist named Molly Lutkovich. And her voice sounded almost joyful, almost breathless. She started telling me the story. She said, oh, there, there was this fish and this fish has been re-tagged and that's really important. And and I I, I just... It was almost as if like when someone hands you a present and you open that present and it looks really interesting, but you don't really know what it is yet. And so this was about five years ago and it kind of launched me into a journey of, of my own obsession um, into researching, you know, what is a bluefin tuna really, right? We think we, we know what a bluefin is. And it was just layers and layers and layers of uncovering the meaning and the biology and the economics and, and the science of this fish and, and people who are obsessed with it. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that, interesting but not surprising, that we have a very sort of cavalier understanding or relationship with this fish. Um, but, you know, much like the enigmatic eel, whose spawning ground was only found like last year, two years ago, we don't actually know that much about tuna. Why is it so, or why has it been so elusive until recently? So one phrase that drives ocean scientists crazy is, we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the ocean. And that is not actually strictly true. That is, that's a bit of a, a, a false adage. But for a long time, ocean science has lagged behind a lot of other disciplines. And a lot of the earliest science that that we have about the ocean came from fishermen, came from this kind of citizen science of like Frank Mather, who I who I kind of detail his biography. He's the father of tagging giant bluefin 
in the Atlantic, particularly. And he just loved catching fish. He was a guy who was an angler. He was, and he happened to be a scientist. And it was the dovetailing of, of his obsessions that kind of brought him to this work of, well, if we don't know where a fish is coming from or where it's going, you know, you can study a bison on land, you can watch a bird flying in the sky. But once you release a fish, it just disappears into this underwater universe. And that's why fish tagging is such a remarkable development in how we understand our oceans. And it really only started in the late 50s, early 60s, and it really needed those intervening decades for that data to accumulate to a point where it becomes meaningful. And so I think this is a lot of, you know, I, my grandfather was a farmer and we would always joke that the thing he did the year before he died was plant a hundred peach trees, right? There's something about this kind of science that it requires an ability to think beyond your own lifetime. And there's something beautiful in, in that kind of science for me. There's also a tension, though, I think, between you talked about citizen science, right? But a lot of the folks doing catch and release, a lot of the people even tasked by international policy groups are actually not just citizens, they're commercial fishermen. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of a conflict there, you might think, between preservation and ensuring your own future, your children's future. Yeah, one of the most inspiring fishermen I met was a man named Rafael Guzman. He's a fisherman in the south of Spain, in Cadiz, in a town called Barbate. And they, for thousands of years, they've trapped these migrating giant bluefin tuna, and they've trapped them in nets, and they've killed them very often, almost in like like one-on-one -on -one combat. And he spoke extremely eloquently about how, you know, these fish, they could see that fewer fish were arriving. These, these fishermen are truly on the front lines. And the tension, I agree, it's, it's a totally ironic tension, is that they love the fish and the fish is their future, but the fish is also worth millions and millions of dollars. Like a, the criminal market for bluefin tuna is estimated to be around 13 million US dollars a year. That's a lot of money. And you have fishermen who very often come kind of from a hand to mouth subsistence existence. And so it, it the, and I, it's funny you mentioned the American eel because I actually, the first, last big project I did before Bluefin Tuna was American eel. I get teased by a lot of biologists that I seem to be choosing the most complex species to try to understand. But I think there's something about that biology and how it interacts with environmentalism and capitalism and the commodification of fish that there's so many interesting tensions that can cast a light for people who don't care about fish, right? Well, I love fish and I love to eat fish. I have, I have a fish tattoo actually, but I want to dig more into sort of the, the commercial value of tuna mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. during my lifetime, bluefin tuna has only ever been a fancy food, you know, like tuna steaks, tartare, not to mention sushi. So I was shocked mm -hmm. to read accounts of American sport fishing for tuna where these like massive fish were just left to die on the dock or became cat food for pennies. Like, 
pennies or or less than pennies right so what i find so fascinating when i was traveling up and down the eastern seaboard from gloucester new bedford across new york and new jersey rhode island maine is that this is not deep history this is not ancient history when this fish was worth nothing many many fishermen some of whom are still fishing now remember when you would catch a tuna and you would bury it for compost or you would, you know, you would hang it up and everyone would take a picture with it. And then you'd put it back on your boat. You'd motor out until the middle of the ocean past the breakwater so the fish wouldn't float back in and they would literally just dump it. And this this was as recently as the 50s, the 60s. So what's so fascinating is that this fish, which you know, it, it evolved about 55 million years ago. This is an ancient, ancient fish that it would have been so precious to early societies to there's evidence of Neanderthals using orcas where the orcas actually drive the bluefin up onto the shore uh, off the Straits of Gibraltar. And then then the theory is that the Neanderthals, the early humans would would pull the fish on shore. They would actually catch it with their hands in the shallows and pull it onto the beach. And that a fish that big could feed so many people, right? You have ancient societies built on this fish. But then you do get through this period where in the, you know, the turn of the century where the flesh was very red, it was almost if a fish, if a bluefin tuna isn't caught kind of quickly and treated well, the flesh kind of burns, it turns purple. And there was this idea that bluefin tuna was only good for cats and immigrants and that the only bluefin tuna that was good was as a status symbol, right? It essentially was like a big game sportsman fish. And it was only when post-World War II, the Japanese appetite for raw bluefin tuna or maguro, when when that Japanese demand started increasing and the prices started increasing, that was the moment where after a period of being taken advantage of by middlemen, right? U.S. fishermen, Canadian fishermen catching this fish, putting it on airplanes, sending it to Japan, that was when people realized this was a huge economic opportunity. And then you kind of, you know, it kind of catches fire globally. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating that all of this is happening too alongside technological developments that like enable huge catches of fish. Um, Those were even happening before it was recognized as a, you know, a a real market. You'd have these massive purse or trawlers. I was fascinated to learn that trawlers date back to what the 16th century um, but flash freezing doesn't. So all these things are happening, you know, like how, I guess, how does this bonanza of fishing, both sport fishing in some towns like Wedgeport and just like wild, unchecked commercial fishing, how does that impact tuna populations in the Atlantic? That's such a good question because we look at these pictures from say Wedgeport in the 1930s, and it's just a wall of huge tuna, right? 
And it's easy to look back with a kind of presentism and say, didn't they know what they were doing, right? Didn't, wasn't the writing on the wall. But as I investigated the history of, um, it's a scientific idea called maximum sustainable yield. It was this idea that was developed by an American that there's a point at which the food source available to a species, they'll run out, right? And so there's a point at which it was almost framed like we were doing these fish a favor by catching them. That that wasn't it this beautiful confluence of human appetites and, you know, the, the, the fish in, in the sea are inexhaustible. That was, this was something people, I think, truly believed. And so there was this dissonance between the amount that was being pulled and the the health of the population. It was only truly in the 1970s when Japanese demand ramped up and you had airplanes, you know, scouring the Eastern seaboard, looking for these giant groups of tuna, some of which were like, they had to, they would draw a giant bluefin silhouette on these giant boats as they were fishing for tuna. So the airplanes could actually match the size of the tuna that they were fishing and the exact size of fish that would get them the most money in the market. And so it was almost this mass targeting of the fish and made possible by the fact that we could keep the fish cold and that we then had the capability to send this fish abroad. Without that that technological development that you mentioned, all fish would stay regional. And so this isn't just a story of, you know, one coffin builder in Prince Edward Island who, you know, they learned that they can fill coffins with ice. And that's the box you needed that was big enough to hold a giant bluefin. And then they would, you know, f- fill the rest of the coffin with ice, hammer it closed, put it on the truck, and send it, you know, the the hours long journey down to JFK where they'd loaded onto a giant cargo plane that had just dropped off VCRs, you know, television sets for American buyers. And then these planes would fly over to Japan. And so it's this incredible story of globalization of the development of the market, but with these really fascinating human characters, right? I, there was not a boring moment for me reporting this book. It is incredible to think of all of the the confluences and technologies that are coming together um, and just like the the sheer advancements in scientific mm-hmm. knowledge, but also just like the fabrications that were also happening at the same time. You mentioned maximum sustainable yield, um, which from your description of it just sounds fake to me. <laughs> the way the industry seemed to be regulated for much of the century, um, including that 45 degree line. Um, that bisects the Atlantic um, seems like a lot of just like hand waving. And I'm wondering if you can talk more about that, about how technology and science sort of headbutted with conservation at the time and maybe how Amelia comes into that. Yeah. So this is this idea that you see across society, right? people using science as a shield, as an excuse to, to to justify a certain type of behavior. And in the case of the 45 degree line, it's 
fascinating to me how that developed, that you essentially had, it was obvious that tuna populations were crashing, particularly in the Atlantic. And you had all these countries, delegations from all over the world, they meet in Europe, and the Europeans largely say, we're not going to reduce the number of fish we're going to catch. And the Japanese say, we're not going to reduce the number of fish we're going to catch. And the American delegation essentially saw drawing a line just literally down the middle of the Atlantic Ocean as the most politically expedient way to try to protect the fish on on their side of the ocean. And what I detail in the book is how this this essentially a political fiction, right, that these, you know, we did have evidence at that time that bluefin tuna roughly stayed on their coastlines. But we we knew at that point for decades that fish had been crossing that 45 degree line going from Europe to North America and back. But it was just it was it was science essentially being weaponized to justify a political and economic end. And so this is where Amelia, this is why when Molly Lutkovich called me on the phone that day, it launched me into this investigation, debunking a lot of these ideas and showing that by, by looking at a fish as it truly is, by looking for real science, you know, by, by making management choices based on, you know, wisdom and data, as opposed to, you know, hunches and conjecture and speculation, you know, mostly thought up by these, you know, middle to upper class, upper class men in like between the 30s and the 50s. There was definitely like a class of that. Um, She was tagged in 2004, this fish, Amelia. At this point, she did not have a name. She was um, a juvenile Atlantic bluefin. They call them footballs. Because if you look at them, they actually, like, you could pick one up and, it, like, hold it almost like a football. That's the kind of the shapes they are. And Al Anderson, at this point, he would have tagged, he's the protagonist of the book. He's this kind of troubled, problematic character. He's a charter fisherman. He is tagging fish because he is trying to understand the ocean and fish and you know, organize the universe for himself, you know, which I think we all do in in our own ways for him. It was catching a fish, putting a plastic tag in its back, you know, handling it gently and then setting it free back into the ocean. And so he did this in 2004. Three years later, Molly Lutkovich, she's the, uh, at the time she was working with some graduate students. They went out, they caught fish, they tagged them. And the fish that she caught and tagged was the fish that Al had tagged three years prior. So she put another device in it called a pop-up satellite tag. And they were actually able to track this one fish's movements up along this eastern seaboard. And then that tag pops off. Amelia disappears. The call I got from Molly Lutkovich was detailing how that fish, Amelia, had grown by many, many magnitudes, had crossed the Atlantic Ocean, had spawned in the Mediterranean, and had been caught in one of these European traps, leaving the Mediterranean. So here you have this fish that's debunking 
this million dollar U.S. industry, these, you know, orderly international agreements, nature is not fitting into the boxes we're kind of trying to confine her into. And Amelia is this proof. She's this needle in a haystack um, that is one data point that as we start looking at this fish and how it breeds and how it moves and all that data starting to accumulate and all these old ideas that maybe served a purpose a hundred years ago, right? We're starting to look at things at how they really are. And obviously Amelia is not the only fish. She's not the only data point. One cannot make international policy on the basis of one tuna, no matter how large. No, absolutely not. No, you you are finding, um, like recently, there's some science happening up here in Canada where U.S. scientists and Canadian scientists, they're all collaborating up in Nova Scotia in this part of the world. And they're finding that between 80 and 90 percent of the small tuna that they're catching off the coast of of Canada and the United States, those are fish that were born in Europe. Then what you have is essentially this baby fish that is crossing the entire Atlantic Ocean. And what a remarkable species to be able to do that. And so Frank Mather, the scientist who I mentioned, you know, he knew for decades and decades that this fish was crossing the Atlantic. But every time he would go to Washington and he would try to make this case, they would essentially just blow him off. And it's a testament to the environmentalists like Carl Safina, who I kind of got into his biography in the book. And he had this really brutal relationship with Molly Lutkovich. So it was just so fascinating how this one fish encapsulated all these human dramas and all these really well-intentioned, obsessive characters who love bluefin tuna and how they all kind of intersect into, you know, what kind of a world are we building for our children and for future generations with how we treat the ocean. So this is the million dollar question. Given how bluefin tuna populations have been decimated over the past century, given that a lot of the regulation in the industry is self-serving, shall we say, or has been, and that the way the policy has been set up was a political fiction, can I feel good about ordering bluefin tuna if I see it on a menu? This is the best and most frequently asked question. And I think it shows that we're nervous, right, about about hurting the species. And that's a sign that all the all the environmental marketing and that that worked, right? We have the, this qualm of should I be eating it? I, you know, I want to be a good person. I want to consume food responsibly. The short answer is yes, you can feel good eating this fish, particularly because um, on an international policy level, ICAT, which is the governing body for these tunas, just passed brand new math-based, they call them harvest strategies. It's essentially a, a mathematical formula where you input tagging and catches and, and where we understand the fish are. And it's like you input the data into the model and the model spits back out the number of fish you should be catching. And it kind of removes it from all those political fictions. Um, if you do want to feel truly good about eating bluefin tuna, um, I would recommend every time you go to a sushi restaurant or another, like, let's say you're at the grocery store and you see some bluefin tuna, you're looking for rod and reel caught, you know, or harpooned. Um, there is still a long line fishery 
in in America and Canada, it's that's where they tow these long, long lines behind the boats. Sometimes the fish can be towed for 10, 20, 100 miles. Um, so that it in in that case, it's you know that's when you get bycatch and turtles and sharks and dolphins. And so long lines are not ideal. But if I can say absolutely with 100% confidence that if you are eating a rod and reel or a harpooned Atlantic bluefin tuna caught in Canada or the U.S., it's it's one of the most sustainable fisheries right now, particularly because the tuna is an extremely resilient species and, you know, the distances it travels means that will protect it from climate change to a certain extent. Every Every scientist who I asked, you know, I said, are you worried about the bluefin tuna? You know, I had one younger woman, an environmentalist, basically say, you know, I'm going to have to find a new hobby because I've spent the past, you know, 10, 15 years of my career trying to save the bluefin tuna. And now we have literally bigger fish to fry. Not actually bigger fish, though. They're they're pretty big. They're they're one of the <laughs> yeah, they're basically the biggest. But you don't want to fry them. <laughs> you do. <laughs> um, well, this and this is the interesting thing about about you know feeling good about eating sustainable seafood is that it can change so quickly because globally our appetites are so huge so i was talking recently to um an advocate for sustainable seafood and she used to say you know small oily fish are the best way to go you know sardines herring mackerel we just had a massive collapse of those fish in the north atlantic you know those fish are now severely threatened i think the best advice i could give would be just ask questions, learn as much as you can, like go into the seafood you buy and eat and consume with a degree of, of thoughtfulness and reciprocity. You know, when we talk about the future of our seas, I think that's the best way for us to kind of do our part. There's a link in the show notes to Karen Pynchon's new book, Kings of Their Own Ocean, Tuna, Obsession, and the Future of Our Seas. I also put in a link to the Monterey Bay Aquarium's Seafood Watch, which I've been using since it was a little fold-out accordion that you kept in your wallet. Since then, it's become an app that is just even easier to use with more detail and more regions for you to choose from. So definitely so definitely download that and use it when you're buying your next piece of seafood. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs> <laughs>